0: Uh as I was thinking about what to share uh, tonight uh I took a look back at some of the messages from previous years from Pastor Lou, Pastor Damian and myself and not surprisingly most of the messages related either to the passion and crucifixion of Jesus or Old Testament shadows of the sacrificial atonement. It is after all Good Friday a day when, quite naturally, we give our attention to the cross of Jesus Christ, the love of God demonstrated in the atoning death of our Savior, who was condemned in our place as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God against sin for us, to save us from our sins. Good Friday services typically have a rather somber sense to them, as we hear about suffering and death, as we hear about Christ on the cross and our sin that put him there. Uh, Sermon titles, such as, It's Friday, but Sunday's Coming, suggest that when Jesus died, Satan won. Maybe for a couple of days at least. And I've seen it depicted this way sometimes in passion plays, where the minions are all like, Rejoicing when Jesus died on the cross. And it is true, Jesus' death is an occasion for sobriety. Jesus died, after all. He literally, truly died. And not just died, not just any death, but an excruciating death. The physical torture and the spiritual abandonment was unparalleled. But let us not forget, it is Good Friday. And it is good for a reason. Satan did not win on Friday, only to be shocked on Sunday with the result. In the cross, God won the victory. And tonight I want to consider one application of Christ's death uh, that we have not considered yet in any of our Good Friday messages. And it's linked to what is called the Christus Victor uh, theory of the atonement, which is a classic idea that has been in the church embraced far back as we could trace. And it is that Christ's finished work on the cross was a victory, a victory over the powers of evil which held mankind in bondage. And of course, this doesn't deny the the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the suffering and death of Christ. At the same time, it's important, though, that we realize that Christ's death In Christ's death, sin was defeated and humanity was set free. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 speaks of Christ taking on flesh and dying so that it says through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life long. Slavery. The text I want to go through this evening is in Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of Romans 6 tonight. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is the middle of an epistle, a middle of a letter. So I want to begin by just giving you a quick summary of the first five chapters of the book of Romans so that you understand the context where this comes in. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, a rabbi who meticulously kept the law of God, believing that he was righteous for his keeping of the law. He persecuted Christ followers until one day when God apprehended him on the road to Damascus while he was on his way to persecute Christians. The risen Jesus Christ himself appeared and called Paul to repent and follow him. Paul's life was changed instantaneously. Instead of persecuting Christians, he became one. And not just any Christian, but arguably the most influential, if influential Christ follower of all time. The Apostle Paul then traveled throughout Europe and he established churches. And he wrote letters to those churches after he established them. And some of those letters make up what we have today, almost half of our New Testament. His magnum opus, the letter of most importance, if you would, or the the most theologically significant letter, is uh, the the letter to the church at Rome, which we call Romans. Uh, We find in Romans the fullest explanation of the gospel, which is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, The letter systematically lays out the plan of salvation, Through the gospel, Paul calls the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Romans reveals the righteousness of God that comes on the basis of faith, and it shows that God keeps his promises. It shows that all the promises that God made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He begins in the first three chapters of the book to show that as a result of sin, All humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone falls under sin and is guilty before a holy God. That all human beings are under the bondage of sin and that there is no one who escapes this condition. There is no one righteous. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. And this is revealed to the whole world by the law as one examines his heart In light of the perfect, holy, righteous standard of God's law, all of us stand guilty. And the just penalty for that guilt is the wrath of God. But that's not the end of the story. Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul writes of a righteousness of God that would not be granted on the basis of law-keeping, but on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. God reveals his righteousness and his justice by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that all who believe in him will be counted righteous on the basis of that belief. Though they were sinners, nevertheless, by a decree of God on the basis of faith in Jesus who substitutes himself on the cross taking the just consequences for our sin that we're responsible for, but he takes them on our behalf. In, in, in this once and for all sacrifice on Good Friday, those who have faith in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, are justified by that faith. That is declared righteous by God, put into a right relationship with him. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. Paul uses his favorite phrase uh, uh, to describe such people. He uses this over 180 times in his epistles, in Christ. In Christ, we have this new status. We move to a new realm. We, We are now forgiven of our sins. We are included in the family of God. We are now God's children by faith. We have a new life, a transformed life, and we are promised eternal life with God forever. Since the beginning of time, though, sin reigned. Sin held humanity in hostage under its power, resulting in death to all people. And that death is a physical death, we all die, but also, more importantly, a spiritual death where we dwell in eternity under the judgment of God in hell. But now, for those in Christ, grace reigns. And that's what he says at the end of chapter 5. At the end he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. That brings us to chapter 6. That's all that is context leading up to our text. Paul transitions in chapter 6 from one section of the letter, which is dealing with justification and our right standing before God, and he moves into sanctification or the change of life that occurs in the Christian as we are conformed to the image of Christ. What begins with justification moves progressively through sanctification. Whereas once we were under the bondage of sin and death, something happened to change all that, to set us free from the law of sin and death. So he says in verse 2, of Romans 6, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Death and life cannot coexist. We we come to Christ by faith. We die to sin. We cannot be both dead and alive as far as the same in the same realm. We're either dead to sin or alive to it. So that's why he, he asked this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our death to sin is the primary theme here in Romans chapter 6. How can we who died, definitive, past tense, this is a once for all breach with sin that now gives us this new identity, this new realm that we are brought into, As believers in Jesus, we are transported into this new realm. It's pictured in baptism in verses 3 and 4. It talks about us being baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. Uh, This is a picture, baptism or immersion into Christ and into his death refers to our union with Christ. In the same way, for those who are familiar with water baptism, the believer is immersed into the water. He goes into the water. Literally, the whole body goes into the water. And, and, and as that body is in the water, in the same way, Christians are united to Christ. We are into Christ in his death. And when Jesus died on the cross, we too quite literally were there when they crucified my Lord. We too quite literally died. When he was buried, we were there. When they laid him in the tomb, we too were buried with him. And this is confirmed in verse 5. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be in his resurrection. That word united literally means growing together. It's a beautiful picture. It kind of reminds me of the vine and the the branches, which Jesus said, I am the vine and you, you are the branches. There's This growing together. It's a picture of the intimacy between Christ's death and our death. They grow together. One is dependent upon the other. There's this indistinguishable closeness in our relation to Christ in his death. Just as surely as Christ died, death takes place in us. But what dies? What is it that died? I'm still here. You're still here. We're believers in Jesus. We're still alive. Look at verse 6. But we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is to say, as Jesus died on the cross in a very real, though invisible way, that old man, who we were before we came to Christ, that old man before we came into Christ, that old self, that sinner, blasphemer, that old, angry, hateful, prejudiced, vindictive, self-righteous, lustful, covetous, disobedient person that we all once were, died. The old person is dead, not in the process of dying. Notice what it says. It says he he or she was crucified. In that death, sin is brought to nothing. And we are delivered from its slavery. But you say, wait a minute now. I, I still sin. Yes, we sin. But when a believer sins, and we do sin, and sometimes grievously so, when we sin, we're acting in a way that is inconsistent with our new nature. Sin, which is natural for the unbeliever, is a freakish activity for the believer. You see, under the old regime, when we lived in the other realm, when sin reigned, we readily submitted to sin's dominance. We live selfishly. Who else did we have to live for but ourselves? And even if we did do something nice for someone, it was usually about how good we felt about ourselves doing something nice for someone else. We thought nothing about glorifying God. We were driven by our passions, our lust, our selfishness. We looked out for number one, and number one certainly was not God. We could not help but sin. But now, in Christ, we are a new creation. The old things pass away. All things become new. We're transported out of one realm into a new one. A good way to think about it is your life, if you're in Christ, has two volumes to it. The old man, volume one, or the old self that existed before you were born again. And then in the new birth, volume two, the new self. The new creation. The old man was a sinner who deserved death, and sure enough, in Christ he died. And volume two opened up in A Resurrected Life that we'll hear about on Sunday. So practically, then, when you're tempted, when Satan whispers in your ear and says, you know, you can get away with this, go ahead. You know, it's not going to hurt you. You might have some fun. You might have a few extra dollars in your pocket if you do this. And you can ask God for forgiveness afterward anyway. You say, God forbid. God forbid that I should trample and presume upon the grace of God. I died to sin. How can I live in it any longer? Volume one is closed. That old man is dead. That old person who we all once were no longer exists and we have been set free. Look at verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free. I hope you can see the absurdity, the freakishness of one who claims to be a Christian yet remains in bondage to sin. There is a logical disconnect. Something is wrong. Either the person is not a new creation, never saved, never delivered to begin with, or there are serious problems with their faith. Either way, they're in danger. Sin is to have no claim over the one who died. Then in verses 8 to 10, he links our death and resurrection to Christ's. Here's the union that takes place. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This death to sin described in Romans 6 takes place in union with Christ's death. And it's irreversible. See that? He says, he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. It's an irreversible act. Having been raised from the dead, Christ will never die again. And as such, death no longer has dominion over him, it says. And then this is the basis for us, of sin not having dominion over us. Now, there's a question that comes up here that I'll deal with very briefly because it's curious. It says in uh, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now I want to raise a question, in what sense does death no longer have dominion over Christ? And that word no longer would suggest that at one time sin had dominion over him, which of course it did not. Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. But when when in Christ's life did was there an exercise of the power of sin? The answer lies in what happened on Good Friday. When Christ took upon himself our sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made him who knew no sin that's jesus god made jesus to be sin for us first peter 2 verse 24 he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness isaiah 53 verse 6 the lord laid on him the iniquity of us all yes jesus was a sin offering but just like the animals in the temple that would offer their lives when, when, when the sinner would come and lay their hands on the animal, there would be an actual process of laying on of hands and as it were, the animal was taking on, him, on the animal. It was a transfer of sins to the animal so that when that animal was slain, it was a picture of sin itself being slain with the animal. Christ so... Perfectly identified with fallen humanity. It can be said that sin ruled over him who was without sin in that last moment of his life. When Jesus breathes his last breath and he bows his head and he says that one word to tell us it is finished. Like we sang earlier, it is finished was his cry. Sin was fully defeated. The consequence of sin, death, defeated. But also the power of sin, defeated. On Good Friday, in his death, Christus victor, that is, Christ, triumphed over the power of sin. And this is not mere theory. It happened so that when we are united with him by faith, we might also triumph over the power of sin because we too have died to sin. So then you ask the question, why then do I still sin? Why is it? Why? Why is it that this ugliness that just seems to reside inside of me, this selfishness, this hatred, this anger, this, this lust, this addiction, this self-righteous, judgmental spirit. What, why does it seem to keep coming back? And what can I do to finally get rid of it? No few self-help books have been written just about this very thing for the Christian. And you can, I'm sure there are thousands of titles on Amazon that you could pick from. Give me three steps to be finally free. Give me, give me ten steps for this. Let me give you one tonight. Just one. One step. Make it real easy, verse 11. And this is very significant, by the way, because in verse chapter 6, verse 11, is the very first command in the whole book of Romans. is that unbelievable? We think of, of the Bible as an instruction manual that gives us commands on how to live. This whole book of Romans, five and a half chapters of the book, there hasn't been a single command yet. Here is the first one. In five and a half chapters, Paul lays out all this truth, all this power of the gospel, all of what we call indicatives that indicate who you are in Christ. This is the way the Bible teaches, by the way. Romans is this way, Ephesians, Philippians, they're all laid out this way. We may not like it, it may not seem relevant or practical to us, We'd rather have the 12-step, easy steps to victory self-help book. tells us how to live. But for the most part, God's way of sanctification begins here. And it's spent much time laying out the indicatives, laying out the doctrine, laying out the character of God. Because this is the key. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. He made us, right? This is the key to victory. The key to victory does not lie in yourself. It lies in believing the truth about who you are in Christ. Very relevant. I'm not saying the Bible's not relevant. It's very relevant. Very relevant. The Holy Spirit knows how to produce Christians. Better than the thousand books in Amazon. Nothing we're called to do. I'm building this up. Five and a half chapters. First imperative. First command, verse 11. What do I do? What do I do? So you also must consider, there's your command, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There you go. That's your one step. Consider yourselves dead to sin. There is your command. There is what you do after five and a half chapters of indicatives. The command is for you to consider or reckon or count or regard. It's an accounting term, legizomai. It means put it on the ledger and count it as true. Put it at the bottom of the ledger. This is true. In a word, believe. We are not commanded to become dead in sin but rather to count our death to sin as accomplished in Christ's death. It is not our reckoning of these facts that make them facts. The fact is, the indicative is, that you are already dead. The old man was crucified. Your counting that fact doesn't add to the veracity of the fact. The fact is the fact, you just have to count it as true. The force of the imperative is that we are to reckon, consider, appreciate, embrace this fact by faith that something was accomplished by Christ on the cross of Calvary. Everything that was necessary for your salvation was done for us by God. And we need to believe it. That is our single application tonight. Believe, consider, grab hold of this truth, meditate on it so that when you're tempted, you're armed. Chapter one is over, volume one is over, I'm now living a new volume. This is the most practical command that we can be given tonight. Now, there are, of course, other practical commands right in our text in the following verses. Make no provision for sin. Do not present the members of your body to sin. Guard your eyes. Guard your heart. Be careful where your feet go. Be careful what you do with your hands. All these things are practical as well, and they are there. But it all begins by counting, regarding this as true. Now, I need to say something as a close To reckon something does not mean to make believe or ignore something. We are not commanded to pretend or act as if we've died when we know full well sin still controls us. If Christ's death has contributed nothing to the death of your old person and you remain in bondage to your sin. If Good Friday is nothing more than you, nothing more for you than a day to attend church, it doesn't matter how many Good Friday services you go to, it doesn't matter how many times you've attended church, you're not a Christian. Because the scripture says you cannot, it is impossible for you to serve two masters. If sin dominates you and you obey the tyranny of sin, then Christ is not your king. But, there is great hope that Good Friday offers. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. And that serves as an invitation for you today to come to Christ. An invitation for you to finally close Volume 1 and start Volume 2 by becoming born again. It doesn't matter here how young or how old you are. Jesus said, you must be born again Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. May today be the day of salvation for you. Repent and believe Christ. Follow him, trust him. And lastly, for my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight, when that old ugliness comes back to bite you, will you find yourself overcome by bitterness or anger or addiction to any sin? and you succumb to it, realize sin is not resurrected. Sin is not resurrected. Your death to sin is an abiding condition. Our sin nature was put to death once for all. But what happens is, when sin captures us, it all begins at that moment of not counting ourselves dead to that sin. We, in a sense, give it life by our unbelief, But it's dead. Count it so, my brother, my sister. Remember, a Christian that's overtaken by sin is actually freakish. It ought not be the norm. Our new natures are recreated in Christ Jesus to live a holy life. So believe that when Jesus died, you died. Believe that Jesus died not merely 2,000 years ago but believe that that on that cross, when he died, it resulted in your death and in victory over sin once for all. Amen.